we should care about ANCSA because the vast majority of the largest Alaskan-owned corporations and virtually all the private land in our state is in the, the control of ANCSA corporations. So the economic future of our state is directly tied to ANCSA corporations. Now, that's not to say that it's the entire picture, mm-hmm. but it's a large part of the picture. And so that's why I think people should understand it and care about it, because in a sense, we've become assimilated into the economy, the politics, and the fabric of our state. That was Aaron Leggett talking about the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA. ANCSA was established on December 18, 1971, and is a landmark policy for many reasons. As a result of the act, Alaska Natives retained 44 million acres of land and about $1 billion to settle indigenous land claims in Alaska. It also divided the state into 12 regional corporations and almost 200 village corporations that split the money and the land. Before ANCSA, the traditional way the United States had negotiated land settlements and compensation with Native tribes was in the form of reservations and treaties. ANCSA changed the fundamental existence of Alaska as a state, as well as the way we think about indigenous land settlements. And this December marks its 50th anniversary. Aaron is the president of the native village of Aklutna and the Anchorage Museum senior curator. He's a shareholder in Cook Inlet Region Incorporated, or Siri, one of the regional Alaska native corporations set up by ANCSA. He's also a shareholder and has served on the board of Aklutna Incorporated, one of the village corporations set up by ANCSA. So here he is, Aaron Leggett. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Aaron, before we start, I wanted to point out that there's a lot of legal vernacular involved in the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, so definitely correct me if and when I get something wrong. Okay, no problem. Okay, so could you explain what the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act is and what it did? Okay, so uh, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act is basically an act that was signed on December 18th, 1971. What it did was it basically settled Aboriginal claims for Alaska. Alaska Natives retained 44 million acres of land and just under $1 billion um, for lands that they weren't going to get. And it divided the state into 12 regional corporations, and approximately 180, 190 smaller village corporations that would divide up that money and the lands, depending on the number of shareholders, um, meaning any Alaska Native with at least one quarter Native blood born on or before December 18th, 1971, could enroll into one of these regional corporations and if they so chose, could also enroll into a village 
corporation. But basically, the, the short answer of it is, if you go back to uh, 1867 with the Treaty of Session, uh, where the United States purchased uh, Russia's interest in Alaska, basically trading rights and what kind of um, infrastructure, limited infrastructure that uh, the Russians had developed here. Um, so in the Treaty of Sessions, it's kind of vague on, you know, what, what the status of Alaska Natives and sort of land rights. And there were a few small attempts at trying to address it, but really it wasn't until that 1971, uh, so we're coming up on the 50th anniversary, that it officially, the government officially dealt with the issue of Alaska Native land claims, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I read that it's the largest land claim settlement in the U.S. history. Uh, correct. I think it's the largest indigenous land claim. Um, and and I don't know on if it's land-wise, but I think certainly cash-wise it is. Um, so, yeah, but definitely the largest land claim in U.S. history. I think if you were to total up all the reservations that are in the United States versus the, the number of acres um, uh, that Alaska Natives retained, it's like one, I think all the reservations are like one quarter. Mm -hmm. Now, it, that doesn't count what they probably started out as, but that's, you know, what they are today. Don't quote me on that, but yeah, you are correct. <laughs> and I also read that it's been called an experiment or mm -hmm. an act of assimilation. Why would it be called an experiment or an act of assimilation? Essentially what it is is it's an experiment in what you could call social capitalism. So going all the way back, I would say, into um, the 19th century, there had been this desire by the United States, uh, kind of for obvious reasons, to kind of contain um, Native Americans or uh, to kind of certain lands or certain areas. And so there were all these um, official policies to get Indians to sort of become like the white man. And a lot of that was centered around uh, what um, at that time, what the United States or what the settler population was used to. And so the idea being, uh, if we can just make them good farmers or, or herder, you know, herding animals, sheep or, uh, you know, uh, what was agriculturists, that's the word mm -hmm. I'm looking for, then then perhaps they will integrate into our society. What's kind of interesting about that is obviously different Native American groups um, approach this at different perspectives, at different areas, different resources, all those things. But you have some examples, uh, like for example, uh, the Cherokee Nation, who in some ways had done everything to model themselves on white society, including owning slaves and some who fought on the side of the South in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So they, they literally, you know, copied the, the society that was around them. But obviously other 
groups. Um, and again, you know, the U.S. is such a, um, a, you know, you have different environments and terrains and, and different places and also depending on where the reservations were and generally speaking, um, where the reservations were for the most part um, were kind of considered to be not desirable lands by this new frontier um, settlers. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some cases where they settled that the the claims, um, like, say, in Oklahoma, but then as people started moving west, those lands got gobbled up and they weren't enforced and, and all those things. But basically, the way ANCSA came out the way it did was the official policy of the United States after, I think... By about 1880, I don't know the exact year, Congress had said, we're done with um, doing reservations. This is this is not working. This is un, untenable. Uh, and that's why it never happened in Alaska, except in one um, isolated incident where you had a group of uh, Simshian from Canada uh, who were essentially being persecuted. They were part of the Anglican church and under their leader, um, uh, father Duncan had moved into a former kind of borderland between the Haida and the Clinket on Annette Island. And so in that one particular case, basically the, the, the U S agreed, okay, that one little island doesn't really affect, you know, the overall claim. But that's the only one, and that's why today Metlakatla is the only um, reservation uh, in Alaska. And because of that, Metlakatla didn't receive a cash settlement, and they aren't shareholders in the regional corporations, correct? That is correct, although um, the, the people were at the time given an option whether they wanted to opt in and stay with Metlakatla or they could um, enroll into one of the corporations. But I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think the vast majority of those people that had come from Metlakatla uh, decided to stay with the uh, reservation system. So looking at Metlakatla, just because it's it's kind of a standalone Mm -hmm. in Alaska as far as it being a reservation, but how do we, or how can we view Metlakatla? Uh, is it just different? Are they doing something better or worse? Or is it just different? <laughs> um, well, it depends on who you talk to. That, that's a really tricky question. Um, the, the way you can look at Metlakatla is if you understand, you know, any reservation in the, in the United States, Mm-hmm. and all the pros and cons that they have, that extends to Metlakatla, basically. And so there's things about sovereignty and self-government and self-determination and what they can and can't do. So things like policing, um, court systems, um, child advocacy, um, and even uh, the, the highly contentious issue of Indian gaming or Indian casinos uh, also extends to them. So it, 
it's just different. I guess that's that's the best way of looking at it. But but also, mm-hmm. it's kind of instructful to think that Metlakatla literally is at the edge of southeast Alaska. Uh, you know, it's the furthest south community in the state. So in a way, it's literally an outlier, mm-hmm. essentially. So it, it almost, I don't want to say it doesn't count, but um, given its recent history uh, and the fact that they know, you know, that going back three or four generations that their ancestors had come from Canada. Mm-hmm. And so they have much more connections into British or yeah, into British Columbia uh, and that part of the world, there there are Simshians in Canada as well. So it's it's just different, I guess. And one more question that I had about that, you know, something just keeps kind of uh, pinging around in my brain. Mm-hmm. But you know, although Metlakhetla is in Alaska, mm-hmm. you know, surrounded by all of these other communities and tribes that are set up and run differently. Mm-hmm. What happens when Metlakhetla has a question or something along those lines about governing or um, schooling? Do they have to reach out to Native American reservations down in the States? I would say generally, yeah, they, they look to those. But but also, they've been doing it for over a century. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a century of active... Um, involvement and mechanisms that have been put in place. Mm-hmm. So if that makes sense, you know, in other words, they've, they've known how to deal directly with the BIA for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. You know, so it, it's for that group, things were settled, <laughs> you know, yeah. it hasn't been ambiguous for a hundred years, more than a hundred years. Yeah. They have a large pool to draw from. Right. And, you know, decades, uh, and, multiple generations of, of leaders and, and, um, and also, but again, it's important to remember too, that their community was also set up at very much as an assimilationist model to the fullest extent. Um, kind of their argument was, look, we want to be able to practice this, you know, Christian religion and we'll be hard working, prosperous, you know, we're, we're, we'll check all the boxes, basically. We'll, we'll, we'll conform to Western society and, and do all those things. And so what, what's happened there, though, in the last, since ANCSA, I would argue, uh, has been a lot more emphasis on kind of the cultural revitalization of their um their art and and lang- language actually continued, so I wouldn't say so much language, but art and certainly culture, dancing, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. as sort of Anxa kind of, I guess, gave them, and for all Alaska Natives, certainly, um, but perhaps for other Alaska Native groups, it wasn't as um, in the distant past to kind of revitalize a lot of those things. And again, I'm just speaking kind of broadly, so and I don't mean to speak for Matt Lacato, but that's just my interpretation. You know, earlier you mentioned that white colonists sought to assimilate Alaska Native people into their ways and lifestyles with things like agriculture. Am I wrong to think that Alaska Native people were already doing their form of agriculture before white colonists showed up to Alaska? 
Um, it depends. Yeah, it depends on where in Alaska you are. Um, you know, certainly it could be argued that like in along the, the coastal areas, certainly in southeast Alaska uh, or um, out on the Aleutian chain or around Kodiak Island and stuff, um, they were, you know, the it was sort of a oceanic version of agriculture. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's a saying um, in southeast and out in the Aleutians that if you're starving, you're doing something wrong because there's always something that you can eat. The ocean always provides historically, you know, in the intertidal zone, you can always find something to eat. Mm -hmm. So they were basically they were sedentary. But then you go in different parts of Alaska and um, it 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 becomes much more difficult. And so in some places you have to wander over hundreds of miles in a year following the seasons uh, to be able to survive. And so that's kind of what they were, I guess, the 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 government and settlers were sort of afraid of this this idea of and this isn't something new. I mean, this goes back this goes back to the Romans, uh, the idea of what is civilization anyways and, and mm -hmm. civilized versus wild or or you know wilderness and, and all those those kinds of issues. But basically in a way what we're talking about is a form of, of control and dominance uh, of a people, a subjugation mm -hmm. in some way, or, you know, I, a subjugation can certainly be take multiple forms, but it, but it is a way of, of trying to control people, I guess is the best way of putting it. And were there any tribes that didn't get land as a result of ANXA? Yeah. There were a number of groups of native people that for various reasons either didn't get the amount of land they were entitled to or were told that they didn't qualify as a village. So places like, for example, Klukwan was considered to be a native village, but if you were in Haines, you weren't considered to be a village. And there were others where... so. Under the um, the act itself, there was a provision that said to form a village corporation, you had to have at least 25 members to create a corporation. If you had less than 25, then you could form uh, what was called a native group or a native association, and the land and money formula was... Um, was reduced. And so mm -hmm. like in the Cook Inlet region, for example, there are one, two, I think there's two, there's two or three native groups and one that's considered a native group that should have been considered a native village, but was sort of the way when, when the kind of the, the timeline and the, and the clocks were ticking, the BIA, in my opinion, dropped the ball and didn't communicate uh, with these people in an effective manner. I mean, today it's 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 important to remember what a different world Alaska was um, in 1971 mm -hmm. than it is today. I mean, you know, you and I grew up here and we've seen the changes, but imagine in some of these communities where there might be one telephone for the entire village. 
mm-hmm. or the mail would take weeks to get there. I mean, in 1971, uh, if you watch television, the, the television you were watching was taped in Seattle and shipped to Alaska and then rebroadcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, so it was on a, a week or two delay. So there were, you know, all those kinds of challenges. And so unfortunately, there, you know, there's politics that get involved, um, but it's slowly working its way through uh, to get full compensation. It should also be pointed out that in Southeast Alaska, uh, it's a little more complicated because in the 1930s, there was the creation of the Clinkett and Haida Central Council who went to the Court of Claims to try to resolve land claims. And basically, so to sue the federal government, you have to give their permission. And so they were granted their permission to sue the federal government. They formed the Clinton and Haida Central Council, mm-hmm. and it took almost 30 years working its way through the courts. Uh, and at the end of it, in I think in 1963, the Court of Claims issued a ruling that said, yes, you're right. The uh, creation of the Tongass National Forest in 1907, I believe, was an illegal taking by, um, you know, the sort of rightful landholders of that area, mm-hmm. uh, the Clinkett and Haidas, and they should be compensated for that. And they agreed and they said, you will be compensated, but you will be compensated at 1907 prices with no interest. Wow. Yeah. So this was the problem, and this is when the sort of, when ANCSA and, and talk of land claims start swirling around 1965, 1966 was the first uh, convention. Those leaders could look at this recently settled uh, land claim by the Clinkets and Haidas and realize that if we tried to go through the Court of Claims we'd probably still be in court or they, I, I have no doubt that they would not all be settled today. It'd still be in court, basically. I think understanding what Alaska looked like in the 1970s would be helpful. I wonder if you could describe what Alaska looked like back then. Okay. So, um, well, I think we'll, we'll go a little bit earlier to me. Pre-1968 is, is, is the way I kind of look at it. Um, so Because of oil. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. So Alaska became a state in 1959. And also in 1959, there was oil that was discovered down on the Swanson River near Kenai. And so everybody knew that there was oil in Alaska uh, going back to the early part of the 20th century. Um, and even there, they knew that there was oil on the North Slope, uh, what today we call the um, National uh, NPR, uh, not the, the radio, but the National um, Petroleum Reserve on the North Slope had been set aside. It was originally called the Naval Petroleum Reserve, and those lands were taken by the federal government um, during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, as sort of a strategic defense. I mean, one of the things that they learned from World War II was 
you know, the dependence on petroleum products for strategic defense. This is one of the reasons that the Japanese faced um, uh, so many problems during the war was, um, you know, it's it not having access to uh, all the, the, the natural resources and, and, and materials that it needed. So they knew that there was oil. But anyways, after World War II and after the federal government because of the war and the buildup and the infrastructure like the creation of the Alaska Highway and the sort of um, creation of the more permanent strategic defense in Alaska going into the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, there was a sense of permanence to Alaska that hadn't existed before the war. So anyways, in 1959, Alaska becomes a state. And so in the, the Statehood Act, the state of Alaska is entitled to select 100 million acres of land. And so they start selecting pieces. And this kind of wakes most uh, Alaska natives up uh, because they they start to see lands that they had always considered to be their, their home being taken away. And, and these various kind of wild projects were being proposed Mm -hmm. like the Rampart Dam, which would have uh, created the largest hydroelectric dam in the United States, it would have blocked up basically part of the Yukon River and would have flooded 10 interior villages to create, I think at the time, I don't know if it's the world's largest, but certainly the largest in the United States hydroelectric power plant. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was also another pro uh, proposal called Project Chariot, which was uh, a plan to detonate seven um, atomic bombs 20 miles from the village of Point Hope mm -hmm. to create the northernmost, in the United States, the northernmost ice-free port. And they said that this w these, these bombs and the explosions and, and, and the residual effects would have no impact on the village or the wildlife 20 miles away. Mm -hmm. Luckily, neither of those things went through, but you can imagine what it would look like. Yeah. So anyways, back to your question, what did Alaska look like? Well, in those first couple of years, we're, we're living pretty modestly as a state. There's not a lot of income coming in. There's a little bit of money coming in uh, from oil, and there's a little bit of money with fishing, timber, tourism, but that's about it. And by 1964, it was looking pretty dire. Like, how is the state going to pay for all these services that they're now in charge of? Like, you know, roads and schools and, and all those things. Well, mm -hmm. sort of Mother Nature helped kind of stave that off with two events. One was obviously the Good Friday earthquake. Um, which then poured in, I think, hundreds of millions, if not close to, I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but maybe even up to a billion dollars in today's money mm -hmm. uh, in rehabbing and, and you know, kind of, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, redevelopment of, of the state and communities. So that kept things going kicking things, you know, uh, down the road. And in 1967, there was a flood along the Chena River that flooded Fairbanks uh, pretty severely. And so there was all this 
um, federal dollars again that came in to help rebuild. It's in a way we kind of find ourselves in somewhat of a similar situation today uh, with our own state budget and with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubt that if COVID had not happened, our state would it it'd be looking very differently right now. In what way? How our state would be paying for things, you know, roads and public safety and and healthcare and and all those things. You know, it it there's it's sort of I guess what I'm trying to say is on you know for the individual or the small business owner, it's been a a bad thing. But for government, the city, a good example is look at the homeless problem we have. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the discussions we've had around that. Well. Now, all of a sudden, we have these millions upon millions of dollars that are coming in that we can probably use towards helping address some of those things. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of, um, I mean, there's winners and losers, but from the state level, from a state budget level, this is, this has probably been, I don't want to say it's a good thing that, but it, but it at least has allowed our state to not really address the fundamental issue that we're dealing with. And what is that fundamental issue? <laughs> Who pays and who stays, In my, as Cliff Grow would say. I mean, it's as simple as that. And how do we pay, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, basically, I think that, you know, if, if I, I can't do a better job than, than Cliff did in explaining all those issues, but, it, but if you want to know more about that, listen to the crude conversation that Cody had with Cliff Grow. It really lays it out. Yeah, that that guy is incredible. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoy um, and talking w- with him. Uh, but but anyway, so that's, you know, that's part of it. I mean, you know, uh, you know, just uh, another good example, kind of bringing it back full circle, and then we can go back into history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are hundreds i don't i don't know what the final tally is but hundreds of millions of dollars probably might even be over a billion federal dollars that are will be coming through the the tribes and the corporations that pass it on you know as well Mm -hmm. so again it's not i'm not saying that it it that we're rich or anything but what i'm saying is it, it hides it masks a fundamental problem. And so that's what I'm trying to say is that the 64 earthquake and the Chena River flood did. And then in 1968, the largest oil discovery in North America at Prudhoe Bay. And in one day, the state of Alaska in 1968 dollars had a $900 million oil lease. Mm -hmm. And again, just to kind of highlight how different the world was, they, the state of Alaska literally chartered um, a jet to take those checks to have them deposited into the, um, the treasury banks in San Francisco because every minute that those checks are not in the bank, you're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, you could do a calculation, but I, it probably wouldn't be uh, a stretch to say, you know, you're losing $10,000 an hour or, you know, you know, $100,000 a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just on the interest, you know, just sitting in a bank, basically. So do you think it's accurate to say that discoveries, specifically 
the discovery of oil and then natural disasters periodically kickstart Alaska's economy? Yeah. Uh, well, um, <laughs> um, I would I would say that Alaska's economy has been saved multiple times by quote unquote federal intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether you're talking about you know the creation of the Alaska Railroad, uh, World War II, you know you look at the population numbers and it's pretty telling you know, what goes on. And then the same thing, of course, happened, um, you know, in 1986 to 1989, there was a terrible recession in our state. And what pulled us out of it was actually a natural disaster caused by oil. Mm-hmm. That kind of, you know, uh, the spillionaires um, that uh, were involved in cleanup. And so I guess we've and I think, and Cliff's talked about this, we've never really truly had to fundamentally answer that intrinsic question of who stays and who pays. Mm-hmm. The spillionaires, I've never heard that. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, I mean, it was, it, it, in a way, it was kind of like a second pipeline boom in a sense. There were people that were running to Costco to go or to different places to buy uh, skiffs and boats to get to Valdez as fast as possible to get signed up with Vico to be on the oil cleanup crews. And I mean, there were people that made a lot of money um, because at that point, not unlike when the pipeline was being built, money in the early days, money was largely irrelevant. It was just look busy, do something, make something happen. We'll, we'll figure it out later. You know, mm-hmm. what do you think about when you think of Anxa? Well, <clears throat> I think it was a moment in time. Um, I think a lot of pieces had to line up at a moment in time. And I think that there was a window and people that were involved in it took it. And I think that the state of Alaska is better for it. Um, there's no doubt if you look at, uh, if you open up Alaska Business Monthly today, the largest corporations with revenue, not necessarily employees, but some of them with employees are all Alaska Native corporations, almost exclusively. Uh, I mean, if what, if what other large businesses are there that are owned as Alaskan companies. I mean, the joke, of course, is the Alaska Airlines isn't from Alaska. Yeah, Seattle. Right. <clears throat> so um, what do you have? And a lot of them have been bought up. You know, the National Bank of Alaska is Wells Fargo now. And, you know, you can remember there's still people that say that cars was never the same after Safeway bought them. Yeah. So, you know, I think it was... Um, it was definitely the best deal that we were probably ever going to get. It's not perfect, but the difference, it should also be pointed out, the difference between the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and a treaty is that with this act, as an act of Congress, it can be amended and changed. And it has been 
I don't know the official count of how many times it's been tweaked, but but there have been some pretty fundamental tweaks that have occurred over the decades. Yeah, it's a complex and growing document, like you said, to the point where pieces of it are still being reworked and refined. What what are those pieces? Um, well, the, it was so in the the original act, you know, which was. When it was signed, it was a moment in time. Uh, it was signed, first off, it was signed by Richard Nixon. And of course, to most people, uh, you know, he's looked at, well, I don't know. I won't get too political here, but many people would have considered him the worst president of the 20th century um, or, you know, his, his sort of fall from grace. Uh, led us to have a national crisis. But to Native Americans, he's largely looked at as a hero. He had a soft spot, it said, for uh, Native Americans because when he was in college or high school, he had a football coach who he res highly respected who was Native American, and um, he watched him be passed over for all these jobs just because he was an Indian, and that always bothered him. And so when he became president, uh, he went to his coach and he said, coach, what should I do? And he said, just take care of Native Americans, just honor your promises and, and do what you can. And so there were a lot of policies that, that, that came out under his administration. And I would argue that um, he, he did more for Native Americans than any president up until Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, and... So we have that. Uh, another thing that people don't realize uh, is that it's under Nixon's presidency that the Environmental Protection Agency was created. Mm -hmm. um, so he's a complex guy. But, but the point that I'm trying to make is that it was a moment in time. They had just enough votes to be able to pull it off. And it was looked at as this landmark piece of legislation and um, window that they took. And so it's not a perfect act, um, but <clears throat> the question, I guess the fundamental question is if you're an Alaska native who is a shareholder of one of these corporations, are you better off than you would have been under a reservation system? And I would say that overall i we probably are now there's a lot of variables that go into that and depending on location and all these things um it's also important to remember that when they were talking about the idea of corporations there weren't very many ways in which native americans had been able to integrate into the western world or western economies you know what 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 jobs were being created on the reservations now you know if you fast forward 10 15 years after ANCSA with the rise of of indian gaming well that's a whole different you know uh change and so the point being that in 1967 or 1970 if you went to go try to see what did the mashtucket pequot or um, the Mohegans, what was their reservation? 
and what were they doing or what were they able to do for their people as some of the earliest um, groups to, to sign treaties and come in contact with what became the United States, mm-hmm. it, it would be looked at as an abysmal failure. Now, uh, of course, with Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun, they're among the, you know, some of the, the per capita rich, they have some of the highest per capita incomes uh, because of what that casino has been able to do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you go to say uh, the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1970 and you went there today, doesn't look that different at all, you know. So there, there's the sort of the haves and the have-nots. And that's also one of the things about ANCSA that they tried to address. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to how to like form this question. So I'm just gonna I'm just okay. gonna say okay. it and see yeah. if it see if it works out. Do you think that because of ANXA, we are where we are now because of it? Because as a state? As far as it being a relatively new idea, because we've been talking a little bit about what was happening in the in the lower forty eight mm-hmm. with um reservations and this was a new idea mm-hmm. am, am i correct in saying it was a new idea oh absolutely it was a new idea like i said it was it's what's what i said earlier was an experiment in social capitalism so mm-hmm. w- what i mean by that is under the terms of the alaska native claims settlement act the only thing those corporations are obligated to do spelled out is to make money for their shareholders Mm -hmm. now it's kind of generally understood and there have been some kind of um you know uh, what's the word um none of them have ever completely subscribed to that theory there's always been that sense of of social welfare built into it so the creation of uh nonprofits, the creation of healthcare subsidiaries, housing authorities, um, you know, money put back into the Alaskan uh, economy for, and for social services in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, you know, the, the millions of dollars that go to things like, you know, Boys and Girls Club or Beans Cafe or the Ark of Anchorage, United Way, um, you know, those, those businesses. 
and that's not to say that other corporations don't do it, but I would argue that the levels at which these corporations do it is at a much higher percentage. And so the point I'm, I'm trying to make here is that just in the last decade or so, there has been this sort of idea that perhaps unbridled capitalism is not the way of the future. That, that there can be a way that you can make money and give back at a level that benefits more people, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I was able to uh, fine tune my question. So do you think that ANXA has helped Alaska, the lower 48, and maybe even the world understand how to equitably yes. and fairly give back to yeah. indigenous peoples? Well, yeah, I think to give, but I think to, to society in general, but yes. Okay. Yeah. But, I, but yes, absolutely. I, I do absolutely um, subscribe to that theory that it, and again, it was this experiment because so one of the things um, that was written into the original act and, and how I mentioned earlier that it can be amended was Congress fully realized that this was an experiment. And one of the things that they put into the original act was that there was a 20 year clause that if this had completely failed, that if a majority of the shareholders and the outstanding shares wanted, uh, they could open up the corporations to outside investment and to, you know, to become like any other publicly traded corporation. So well, what does that mean? Well, if that had happened, you look at something like um, the Red Dog Mine or Pebble, Pebble would be, we'll take Pebble as an example. So if it had been opened up and Rio Tinto and um, any of the other large mining firm, Northern Dynasty, had become investors in uh, the mine, would it have went through? Uh, or zinc mining, oil, you know, it, it, it created this, um, because of the way the act is structured, it kind of puts another layer of complexity into what I, what again, what I call that unbridled capitalism that mm -hmm. Alaska had seen at the beginning of the 20th century uh, with um, the uh, Kennecott copper mine. Uh, so I did a calculation once that the, the, the Alaska syndicate owned by the Guggenheims and JP Morgan, uh, the mine operated for about 30 years and after all its investments, when it was all said and done, pulled out, I think in today's dollars, something in the neighborhood of over $30 billion. And that that didn't stay in Alaska. I mean, we're slowly clawing some of it back, maybe from some of the foundations <laughs> that they set up and created. But but those kinds of things would have, would have happened. Uh, another good example of that would be look at um, some of these countries in in Africa you know, uh, where uh, corporate interest had taken over or what had happened in the Middle East before um, these governments nationalized, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, the, 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 there's, you know, had it, had, had ANXA not happened, 
or had the corporations been opened up, Alaska would look very differently. Now, depending on what side of the, the ledger you're on, um, you could look at that as either a great thing or a bad thing. But the fact remains um, that, you know, the vast majority of privately held lands in Alaska are owned by ANCSA corporations. And one of the provisions in ANCSA, what, probably the most important provision in ANCSA, again, talking about Congress recognizing this disparity, was the section called 7I. And so what 7I says is that 70% of the uh, subsurface revenues after expenses and all those things, 70% of that minus, you know, the, depending on the number of shareholders you have. So it could, could be as much as 69% or it could be as low as maybe 65, 64%. I've never done the actual calculations gets sent out the door and is redistributed to the other 11 regional corporations. And the regional corporations get to keep half of that money that comes in every year. And half of it goes out to the village corporations who then uh, either invested or distribute it to their, um, their shareholders. So what it does is it creates this intrinsic value to these corporations year after year. And so it's went up and down and fluctuated. And there's talk about um, largely in the last seven, eight years after Nana had paid off all of its investment costs at Red Dog, that how many hundreds of millions of dollars uh, have been sent out to the other regions. And now in the next couple of years, uh, the mining is gonna move on to state land and that'll disappear there's still always gonna be some money coming in. But the point of it was they, that, that Congress was smart enough to know that there are some places in Alaska that um, just don't have um, either very desirable natural resources or, or incredibly expensive to try to develop. So mm -hmm. the point was that like, for example, in Southeast Alaska, you know, the Sea Alaska Corporation could hit the ground running as soon as they received their, you know, titles to their land and could start clear cutting, you know, logging. And there's very little capital investment relative to trying to develop the world's largest zinc mine mm -hmm. or pebble or, or whatever. And so, and then there's other places in Alaska, you know, where you look at, um, you know, you're out in the middle of the tundra and it doesn't have, um, you know, an oil, massive oil reserves or something like that or, or gold or, or whatever. Or it, it has those things, but it's 300 miles from the closest uh, port, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, whatever it is. Whereas, again, if you're in southeast Alaska, you're on the ocean, <laughs> you build a road through the forest, you're right there on deep water and yeah. send it to Japan. I mean, it, 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 so, and, and they've all learned over the years and there's, you know, it's, it's fluctuates and it goes up and down and, and there's, you know, uh, having been involved with this, studying this thing for close to 20 years now, you know, they're, they all kind of jockey back and forth on what they're doing and, and different investments and different strategies and, and all of that. But, but there's no doubt that it's, um, 
you know, the Yanks of corporations have paid out more in shareholder dividends than they re- they received under the original um, act, even if you factor in inflation. So this might be one of those moments where you have to correct me. Okay. So there are about 425 million acres of land in Alaska. Of that... I think 360 million. It's 360 million. Okay, there we go with the first correction. <laughs> Of that, ANCSA gave about 10.5 or 11% yeah. of that land back to Native tribes. Do you think something like this could happen today, that 90% of a people's land can just be taken from them in an act of governmental regulation and then remedy the situation with reparations? Hmm. Well, I mean, <clears throat> that that's... That's a tough question. I mean, I think at this point, it would, you'd have to presuppose that if we go into space or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> colonize <laughs> Mars and we find Martians or something. I mean, you know, um, it, well, yeah, no, it could, it, but it would happen at, at some scale, you know, it'd be some island in the middle of the ocean or something, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I was about to say too, an island. I mean, it could be, yeah, could it so let's hypothetically say that, um, you know, uh, the Hawaiian Islands or something like that. Could it happen today? Sure, of course it could. You know, I mean, that's what colonization is all about, you know. And I think it gets back to our conversation about history earlier, right? When we're, when we're looking at ANCSA in the context of Alaska in the 1970s. And that's what I was thinking when I wrote that question is, you know, there's a lot of woke culture Mm -hmm. and um, people being very socially aware. Mm -hmm. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if, if we're at a point where we would push back against that, or would it be a situation where we would just kind of give the thumbs up and then, you know, 50 years from now, we would look back on that situation and be like, you know, condemning it. I think it would depend on how it would be spun. I mean, let's just, we'll go science fiction here, but let's hypothetically say that there's some island that was discovered. And let's say that there was a tribe of indigenous people living on that island. And we discovered that there was some rare earth mineral that we had to have for our iPhones or for our hell, I mean, for the cure for COVID, mm-hmm. something like that. Would it stop? No way. It'd be too power. You know, there's just too much demand. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now there might be fighting over that. And certainly that's how wars get started. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I'm being a little cynical here, but I certainly think, I mean, sort of an example of what would have happened 30 years ago versus today and some of what, some somewhat related sort of the outgrowth of, of native self-determination is something like the Keystone Pipeline that didn't go through. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to believe that it couldn't happen, but I don't, I, I, it, I just think that if, if there was enough, if it got spun enough, no, 
you can't stop the wheels of progress is sort of the way some of these, you know, the way it's been described, Mm -hmm. you know, why should these, this small group of people have the, you know, 99% of the world's reserve of this rare mineral or plant or God knows what, you know what I mean? Something Mm -hmm. that couldn't be reproduced. Yeah. That's not fair. You know, this is part of either our nation's strategic uh, importance or the world's just depending on how it, you know, it got, well, again, we're in kind of a science fiction realm, but, but yeah. Is there anything right now that you can think of in Alaska that is currently happening? Maybe a piece of legislation that you can parallel ANXA to something that is very much a part of its time. Hmm. You mean as a country or as a state? As a state. No, no, there's nothing. No, I mean, this, no. Um, I, I, you know, no, there's nothing that I could, could point to that would be, I mean, this is a game changer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if, if tomorrow, I mean, even if there was a natural gas pipeline that was being proposed and constructed, I don't, even that I don't think would be enough to to, to say that it, it would change our fundamental um, existence as a state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I can't. I mean, this is this is this is a massive of of thing. I mean, this is really, and this is why it's kind of a shame that it's not taught. I mean, this is one of the key moments in our state's history, whether you agree or not. I mean, mm-hmm. there's sort of World War Two, the disco- discovery of oil, and this. I mean, it, it's those those things on a statewide level fundamentally changed the entire being of our state. Um, now, I mean, the question would be, what if oil disappeared tomorrow? Mm-hmm. What would our state look like? And that's a really interesting question, you know, or I, I guess, well, let me actually, no, no, no. I'm going to step back. The only thing that could compare to this would be is if there was actually a plan on the table to figure out what to do with the permanent fund. Yeah. Okay. Not the permanent fund dividend, mind you, but the permanent fund. Mm -hmm. If there was actually a plan set forth that said this 60, $70 billion that we have is going to be used to, to fully fund the infrastructure of our state or schools or whatever it is, the development Mm-hmm. That could do it, but that's the only thing I can think of. It'll never happen. <laughs> well, it's going to have to happen at some point, but it's it's not going to happen until they're forced to make it happen. So you talked a little bit about this just a second ago, about how ANXA should be taught in school. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if you were to kind of encapsulate all of this into maybe a sentence or two, why should we care about ANXA? We should care about ANXA because the vast majority of the largest Alaskan-owned corporations and virtually all the private land in our state is in the, the control of 
ANCSA corporations. So the economic future of our state is directly tied to ANCSA corporations. Now, that's not to say that it's the entire picture, mm-hmm. but it's a large part of the picture. And so that's why I think people should understand it and care about it, because in a sense, we've become assimilated into the economy, the politics, and the fabric of our state. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, if we had had reservations, would that have occurred? We can sit here and theorize and, and all these things, but probably not to the same level. Um, you know, if if we did an imaginary scenario where you had reservations, and so, uh, for example, um, if a Cluton had a reservation, what would that look like? Well, <laughs> you you know you'd go past Eagle River, and all of a sudden you would be on the Eclutna you know, reservation. Mm-hmm. And you would be, if you were caught speeding, you'd be pulled over by the tribal police and you went by their casino and you saw their healthcare facilities that, mm-hmm. you know, were, um, were nicer than what you could find at Providence. I mean, I'm just being sort of facetious, but, but you get the sense <laughs> of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you drive for another 30 miles and then you'd hit Knicks or you'd hit Chickaloons and then you'd go, you know, it'd be a zigzag checkerboard. And in some states, that's what it is. You know, you go through Oklahoma and all of a sudden you're weaving in and out of it. In, in some sense, it's almost like separate countries. Mm-hmm. And as the president of the native village of Aklutna, how would you feel about that? um well um i well my job would be a lot tougher you know in some ways it'd be a lot easier and a lot some ways it'd be a lot tougher you know uh how would that look well you know, on some things like uh, the fact that we could set our own hunting seasons for the moose or fishing regulations uh, for our tribal people or um, those kinds of things, that would be a real benefit. But at the same time, if I wanted to build something, I have to go get permission from the federal government to do it mm-hmm. as the president. So I'd still be kind of I mean, the tribe still is under the thumb of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but it's not the same for an ANCSA corporation. I mean, Syria or Eclutin Inc., if it wants tomorrow to develop a subdivision, it can do it. It just follows the laws of of the state Mm -hmm. or the city. You know, we don't have to go get permission. So, you know, it cuts out a level of, I guess, on the one hand, it cuts out a level of bureaucracy, but it also does cut out a level of protection. Although I would argue that protection is spotty at best. <laughs> Would it be similar to like so many people have talked about for years, Alaska seceding from the United States? Yeah. Yeah, I think it would. Which, by the way, I, I think would be a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you just look at the federal expenditures, I mean, if, yeah, it sounds great, but I, I know it's sort of a joke that people make fun of, but there was truth in what Palin said about, you know, we can see Russia from our backyard. 
and trying to imagine the the state of Alaska or the uh, the country. I don't know what we would call it, Alaskana or whatever, yeah. is in charge of getting the F twenty two Raptors. Now you could probably we there probably could be some agreements where you know, like in some foreign countries where we allow, um, like at Guantanamo Bay, you know, where you would have, you know, a U.S. outpost or like in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, again, I think it'd be a terrible idea, Cody, for the simple fact of we can't manage our own state budget. Mm-hmm. Trying to imagine a country budget, you know, where we are in charge of all those things. And, and unfortunately, probably what would happen if we were a country would be the same thing that we already kind of see. And that would be a consolidation of, you know, the power and, and wealth into those places that are the most readily accessible and most developed. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't be any further expansion, but again, at the same time, if that was to happen, that could also mean that, you know, you would, there'd be no Denali national park and, we could shoot wolves from helicopters or mm-hmm. um, we could have oil derricks, you know, looking at uh, at Denali or I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being pretty extreme here, but but you get you get where I'm going on this, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but it leaves a lot out and it it actually kind of is it, it, it really I don't I guess I don't think most Alaskans truly understand how much of our economy is directly dependent on federal spending. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the other thing is how, you know, as a state, we don't pay taxes. So as a country, we're going to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Give me a break. We, uh, our population, you know, and then we'd be ripe for invasion. Again, it would be, we'd have sort of the same argument I made about <laughs> this hypothetical place that was discovered. Mm-hmm, yeah. It'd be the same thing here. Why would 700,000 people get to own 360 million acres of land? Mm-hmm. Take, in, you know, native people off, you know, just, but as, as just residents of, of, of this mythical country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no way. The Russian army would be in here in 0.5. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting thought. It is an interesting thought. <laughs> I think it might make a better movie than a reality. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, right, sure. I, I love Red Dawn just as much as the next person. Exactly. I mean, that's what it would be, you know, Wolverines. <laughs> that's what it'd be kind of like, though. I mean, anyways, so, but, you know, but it also kind of belies the fact that had the Treaty of Session not happened, it's very possible that we could have been under the um you know well it would have been the czar and then it would have been the soviet union and then it would have been you know part of the russian federation now and as a point to that if you want to know what it would look like all you got to do is go across to kamchatka or to um chakotka and see what's being developed there not a lot and since the fall of the soviet union almost nothing Hmm. So we've talked a lot about ANXA on a macro level, mm-hmm. but what do you know about how individual tribes and individual people feel about the settlement and Alaska Native corporations? That's a really interesting question, Cody. I think 
I think generally, it what it forces us as Alaska Natives to do is to have multiple identities that are sometimes in conflict. Um, and it creates situations where we have to try to find a way uh, to try to resolve those issues. And that it, it, so, you know, <clears throat> it, it creates a level of complexity. Mm-hmm. I mean, having been involved in these things, you know, as the, the, the president of the tribe and having served on my village corporation board and having been uh, an employee of my regional corporation, although not that I had any power at the regional corporation, but still just seeing the inner workings. Um, mm-hmm. it, um, it becomes confusing. The one thing I will say, though, and the one thing that I had to deal with and in some ways would still be dealing, I, yeah, that, that's still an issue is that since 1971, only half of the native corporations have decided to enroll those born after December 18th, 1971. So currently, my um, regional corporation, Cook Inlet Region or Siri, is not one of them that enrolls the next generation. And so here we are 50 years later, and when I was um, first starting you know, in my early 20s, and I got a job, you know, uh, a part-time internship at Siri, these afterborns or new natives, as they were called, mm-hmm. were, the oldest ones were about 30, 31. Well, today they're 51. And so at that time, they were still kind of looked at as kids. They're not kids anymore. Mm-hmm. And... um so I was fortunate in that I was actually working at Siri um, at a time. I mean, it's fortunate and unfortunate. The unfortunate thing is that my grandmother passed away uh, the second year I was working at Siri. And in her will, she left her shares to me and my siblings and my cousins. And so... I was actually sitting at my desk at Siri, getting an email saying, come downstairs, you're now a shareholder of this corporation. Really? Yeah. And so from that point forward till today, um, it created a situation where I felt like I belonged. It mm-hmm. was no longer theoretical. Yeah. And what I mean by that is to me, it was, and it's never been about um the money you know the dividends Mm -hmm. it is about the ability to vote and exercise my voice in the decisions of this corporation and to be able to and it's again to me it was not about the money that is generated it has to do with the ancestral lands in which that corporation owns Mm mm-hmm so that's the reason for me to want to be involved is that it's to try to figure out how can I have a voice that helps shape the policies and the decision making of what happens to those lands. Mm-hmm. Because once they're gone, they're gone. I mean, that's the other, you know, this is not that it'll happen, but, you know, each corporation has its own unique story but but the point being that um 
it was that sense of belonging to me that was the most important part. And there was an event that I was turned away from, and this is more than two decades ago, so I'm, it's not an indictment on the current corporation, but there was an event that I was turned away from because I was not with a shareholder, i.e. my, my mother, uh, even though I was 20 years old at the time, um, because they had not set up a mechanism by which they could identify their descendants. Now, they've done a lot, especially in the last 10 years, to, to try to change that, but it should have never happened. At that point, they were a corporation for 30 years. And so those are the kinds of examples. And so it, it didn't matter, ironically, well, it kind of did, but ironically, I was initially turned away at the door of this event because I was a descendant, not a shareholder, even though I had worked for the corporation. And I was only let in eventually because somebody had vetted for me and said, that's Aaron. He's our assistant historian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, let him in. And it wasn't that I didn't think that I could get in because I knew I was going to, or I was, you know, this is of course before social media, but there were still ways that I wasn't going to let that stand mm -hmm. um, because it was wrong and it was, it'd be wrong then and it's still wrong now. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I was afraid of is if I was some young Alaska native who hadn't really had much of a connection to my native culture had grown up in Anchorage, didn't know anything, but knew that one day I was going to be a series shareholder and I just finished my MBA at Harvard or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if I get turned away at the door, how am I going to look at that corporation? So my point was that they could be turning away their next CEO. Mm -hmm. And a real life example of that is Jason Matrokin, who is the... CEO of Bristol Bay Native Corporation. I've known Jason since my early days there, and he was, uh, I look up to him as, as, you know, as a mentor. He's about 10 years older than I am. He went to service, didn't really know much of his nativeness, played hockey at service, all these, you know, I could relate to a lot of the things about him. And when Jason's grandfather died, he gave Jason his shares in Bristol Bay Native Corporation. Mm -hmm. Well, at the time, that I was working at Siri, um, Jason had just gotten on the board of Bristol Bay uh, Native Corporation because he was a shareholder. But as at, at that same moment, Jason's father, Dennis Matrokin, was the president and CEO of Koniag on Kodiak. But Jason's not a shareholder or wasn't at the time of Koniag. So he's, his track tenure went with Bristol Bay Eventually, he became CEO. So my point being that Koniag's now they have enrolled. I, I think they've now enrolled uh, their their descendants. Um, but my point being, the grant the decision Jason's grandfather made to give Jason those shares in Bristol Bay helped shape the future for that corporation to Koniag's detriment, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, Aaron. That does it for my questions. As always, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, no problem. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, I, I mean, I, I think I, I feel like in some ways we just kind of scratched the surface on this topic. So my, my hope is to 
to get it out there. Hopefully, it'll generate interest, and and we can, you know, continue to have conversations like these because I I really do think they're they're vitally important uh, for the future of my state or of our state. Excuse me, and I think that um, you know the work that you do is just so so important, and I'm I'm really glad to support it and. I'm glad. I think I'm probably the record now for a <laughs> number of times of being interviewed by you. But it, but it's really an honor, and I really enjoy it. And so anytime you want to have me back again, just let me know. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keezy Baby 